Uh, we are in part seven of our First Timothy series. We are in First Timothy chapter five this morning. Um, I entitled the message Obedience School because we're going to be talking about what the big dogs of leadership need to learn. All right. So we got an obedience school going and I want to start out with a concept. So take out your handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. Uh, for some of you, you've always dreamed of the idea of doing full-time ministry. Uh, that you would love to be able to match together some of your great passions and pieces of your life. You would say, how cool would it be that instead of going to a job and then trying to volunteer and do ministry somewhere, how amazing would it be is if I could take my love for Jesus Christ, my passion for Jesus Christ, and actually merge that with my job and be able to do that full time. That would be the greatest thing in the world. Well, it certainly sounds like a great idea. Let me let you know what's on the other side of that. Um, it is a great idea for some of us, but I will tell you this. By the time I get done describing it today, you will realize why I tell you. Do not do this unless God asks you to do this. Because that would be a horrible idea. The amount that it will cost you to do something like this is extraordinary. Let me give you an example. Um, for anyone that is involved in ministry, whether it's volunteer, intern, paid staff, part-time, full-time, doesn't matter. There are certain things that it will take from you. As much as I love and am thankful for this job, I'm also very uh, honest about the cost. First one is, what about the cost in terms of emotional weight? Uh, for some of you, you carry the weight of your immediate family. Let's say uh, someone in your family goes down sick and it causes you a lot of emotional turmoil. And you would say, well, I hope they're okay. I'm thinking about them. I hope things are going well for them. I wonder what this means. Does it mean they're going to get more sick? Does it mean they're going to get better? The doctors don't quite know what's going on. A lot of you would carry that emotional weight for your immediate family, or you might carry it as well for your friends, your core group of friends. As a general pastor of a congregation of this size, we carry you. That means that it's not only our families, it's not only our friends, it's not only our coworkers. it is 4,000 people that are on our hearts. And in that group, you go, well, I've been pretty generally healthy. That is true. However, in a large group like that, there are a lot that are hurting. We carry those things heavily. So there is an emotional involvement because the only type of people that we want on our staff are people that love other people deeply. If that's the case, they're going to carry you around with them. The sheer emotional weight of the things that I hear, that I go through, because it's not just what you're going through now. A lot of times I meet with you and I know what you've gone through in your past. Those types of things weigh heavily on our spirit. It's not just, it's not just the emotional side of it. There's a, an element of physical demand. There are times and seasons in this church that you can roll up to our church at 2 a.m. and the lights are still on and people are still working. Why? Because there's a lot to do. It's long hours. I would say, and I can ask Lane and he can back me up on this, uh, five out of the last six elder meetings, the lights shut off on us while we're meeting. What does that mean? It means it's 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock here, all the lights shut off and you have to go hit the toggle switch to get them back on. So we're still in meetings at 11 o'clock. We're not done. 
And so you're getting home at midnight, 1230. There's long hours. It's demanding on your body. And as a matter of fact, I find that if I don't take care of my body, then I will not have the discernment capability of doing the ministry I'm supposed to do. Um, remember how uh, there's the famous phrase, and I've always used it to try to keep myself in line, and it's the famous quote, uh, the difference between a mountain and a molehill is a good night's sleep. Right? Think about that one. Because things are so huge when you're exhausted. And there's so much more doable when you have rest. So we have to manage our systems because it's physically demanding to put in those types of hours. But there's also a spiritual component. There's a spiritual liability in being in leadership because it drains out of you spiritually. You're giving and giving and giving in a spiritual way. You get tired of being in the prayer. You get tired of being uh, doing something that doesn't always seem to pan out. What about the spiritual warfare aspect? Being a leader of any sort, you got a target on your back. Why? Well, it's surely practical for Satan. Is if he's trying to watch how much ammo he uses, he can shoot one of you and he'll expend a bullet and he'll get one. If he shoots a leader, he can expend one bullet and get ten. It's just sheer ratios. Why wouldn't you spend all your energy attacking leaders? Why would you ever attack someone that's not a leader? It wouldn't make sense. Now, of course, he still does. The spiritual warfare element, whether it's coming from a internal spiritual direction or whether it's coming from external critique right because i mean the sheer job by nature is under a microscope and everybody's got something to say everybody has something to say about how i'm running the church or how the leaders are running the church or why we do what we do and everybody's got an idea on how it could be better it's just a difficult job the amount of different skill sets that it takes to run ministry is extraordinary. So I know that it seems like a brilliant idea. Just understand that leaders are in living in a whole different type of world. The fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. Leadership carries a heavy price tag. Leadership carries a heavy price tag. Now before I begin the passage today, I want to remind you of our definition here at Bridgeway of leadership. We borrow one from Maxwell who said, leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. That means wherever you have influence, you are a leader. If you're a leader with your friends, the leadership stuff we're talking about applies to you. If you're a leader at work, this leadership stuff applies to you. I know that when we're going through first Timothy, you're going, man, you're talking about pastors and leaders a lot. This doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it does. If you're a parent, it applies to you. If you're influencing anybody, it applies to you. You just have to apply it appropriately. So as I go through this today, I want you to consider what does this mean for you? What is God trying to whisper into your ear? All right, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. It's page 841 in the Bible's handed to you. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let's kick off this morning with a little plea for me to make more money. Here we go. By the way, y'all understand that I pass out Bibles so that you'll realize I didn't make this stuff up. Okay, good. Here we go. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Huh, that's nice. 
For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. And you're going, oh, I get it. Okay. Verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And you go, oh, I get it. So this is all about protecting the leadership. Well, I don't know. Look at the next verse. But those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Ooh, it's not as fun anymore. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to serve you in whatever capacity that father every believer here has been called by you to do a task and in that way they are leaders again and so whatever it is that we are supposed to do whether it's to share with our neighbors whether it is to minister to the hurting all the mandates of scripture that we are given to do may we do them well may we understand the responsibility that is upon our shoulders that we carry your name tag on everything that we do that we represent you to the world May we do it with all diligence, with good hearts, and with a mountain of love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so what does it say? It's talking about the elders, and when we talk about the elders in the ancient church, we have to remember what they're like. I want you to think paid pastor staff. That's what I want you to think. General pastors. Because they would grab a small group of guys to run the local church, and they would all receive a stipend. They were the ones that were on staff. Now, in the early church, the churches were so small and a lot of them were slaves and a lot of them were poor. This was not a lot of money. So they would always have outside jobs only until once the church began to pick up, did they stop having outside jobs. Paul said, you know what? I have every right to be supported by the church. However, in certain environments, when he was with a church that was locked in poverty, who was already questioning his character, he said, I want nothing to do with your money. I'm going to go do my own job and I'll minister to you because I don't want you to think that in some way I have mixed motives. So when we talk about elders, I need you to think more paid pastors. So in this church, we have paid pastor elders and then we have volunteer elders that receive no stipend whatsoever. Where did that come from? Well, it came that along the way down through church history, they wanted to mix in groups, a group of representatives of the congregation that weren't in it and did not have any money involved whatsoever. So they knew that that was a way of purifying the pool. If they were to sacrifice and give and give and give, receiving no remuneration, then wouldn't their hearts maybe be more pure? So we have a grouping. And in our church, we have a certain group that is paid, a certain group that is not. Hopefully those will be checks and balances. But this is what he said. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, what? What's the next word? Well, that's key. There is no allowance, and I push this a lot, there is no allowance for poor work ethic, especially in the ministry. At no time is a Christian to be charged with being a poor workman, being lazy, being one that uses a system that is absolutely unacceptable. Especially among clergy. The idea that there are some pastors out there that have lost their passion for leading in ministry and they're merely doing it as a job or a stepping stone, a ladder by which to go on to bigger and better things makes me nauseated. I don't like that at all. So Paul said, if we want to talk about honor, if we want to talk about being paid for something, 
he uses the word that says putting all your effort into it. It doesn't mean working long hours and being a workaholic and ruining your family. That's not what it means. It means that the effort, when you are on, you are all in. Are you putting forth dramatic effort? If you are that type of leader, then there is a certain honor that is due you. And he says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. What does that mean? Nobody knows. It's a cryptic phrase. Throughout church history, they've argued about it. Does it mean respect? Does it mean money? You know, you get the phrase honorarium. That's kind of where it comes from. The idea that there is an honor and it is paid for. What does it mean? Well, nobody quite knows. So a lot of the time the commentaries would go, well, it's largely a respect issue. But considering the context, you have to involve the issue of support financially. Double honor. Double of what? Where are we starting from? I don't know. Here's where I would like us to understand. Given the description of leadership and how difficult it is, I would hope that at all times this church respects their leaders. You understand what I mean? That I know you have critique of them. I would just hope that you would give them the due respect that they're out there slaving away and doing it every day. I think that's important. Do they pay our leaders here? We do. We do. As a matter of fact, at this church, we have made certain decisions. We have a philosophy about how people are paid around here. We made this decision years and years ago. What we decided was that you can always go one of two directions with churches. And I know churches in the area, and they all fall into one of two categories. You either have the churches that have huge staff, and they pay them less, or you have smaller staff, and they're paid more. We made the decision a long time ago that if they were going to pour their guts out for the people, I would much rather have a smaller staff if we paid them in a healthy way to where they didn't feel like they were straining there too. So what we do, actually, if you want to know the inside scoop, is that we pay for a report, a report that goes out nationally, and it makes a matrix of examining all churches in the United States, all churches of certain denomination, all churches of certain size, the exact job description, and it crosses back and forth and double checks, and it examines that in your specific area, in your specific uh, scenario, what is the average that is paid for that position? We take that and then we kick it up a notch and say, that is where we will pay our people. That costs us as a church because we can't afford more staff. But I do not believe in the concept of going, hey, man, just do it for the Lord, right? You know what? You come out here. Yeah, you're going to stress all the time and your, and your kids aren't going to be completely provided for. But it's ministry, right? So we're going to have a whole bunch of them. And then if they burn out, we'll just replace them. I think that's garbage. I think that you get great leaders. You bring them in and you pay them in a healthy way to say, we respect you enough for this. And you know what? We're not going to be able to do more ministry. It's going to limit our scope, but at least they're healthy. That's a big deal for us. Do I think that um, when I look at this and people go, well, poor, you know, poor Lance, he's in the pastorate. And you know what? I am fine. I have never come to this church and said, I want more money. I need more money. Forget that. I used to do this for free. 
The idea that this is even a job for me is weird. Because I will always preach the gospel. I will always love on people. It doesn't matter whether I'm paid or not. If an elder is listening and you want to remove my salary, stop doing that. Okay. I just realized some of them are here. Why do, we, why do we do that? Take a look at it. says, for the scripture says, and it quotes Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, a literal law on the books of Israel given by God about cows. What? Do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. What in the world does that mean? You got any oxen at home? No, I mean, this is one of the hard things about the Bible is that it's an agricultural society and we are in a completely different scenario. So what does that mean? Well, basically, here's how it goes. You take all the sheaves of grain, you throw them down on the ground. Now you need them to be crushed and separated. So what's an easy way to do it? Have a cow walk on it. Isn't that the next natural choice? Right? So you grab your cows, you let them walk around on it. Now, if you want to get a little bit more modern... You have the cows tied together. They drag what's called a sledge. A sledge is two pieces of wood strapped together, weighted down, and they drag it, and that goes over and crushes all the grain, and then you're able to separate it. So you can either do that by having a long, flat surface like the stage here and drag cow, a cow would drag it that way and then turn around and drag it that way, or if you want to be super efficient, put a little tie rope in the middle and let them go around and around and around, Right? Okay, that's called a threshing floor. Well, as cows going around and around and around, there's periodic times that cows going to need a coffee break, right? Because he's like, man, I'm exhausted. I would love to just eat a little something. Well, along the way, guess what he's going to eat? He's going to eat what he's stepping on, which is kind of gross, but he's a cow. So as he's looking down, he's going, well, you know what? I can eat that and I can eat that. And he's going around and he's eating a little bit. Well, you can imagine that some of the farmers are going to go, man, I would get a lot more done if I would just shut his mouth. Let me just put a muzzle on him. Then he can't eat it and I'll have more at the end of the day. God put a law in the books and said, don't you dare do that. Why? Is it really about God's protection of cattle? Perhaps. I don't think so, but it's possible. I love animals, so I think that's completely legitimate. I think it's trying to teach Israel that you don't use people. I think that's what it's trying to say. No, you don't have him walk around and all he does is produce and produce and produce and he gets nothing out of it. Because then he ends up resenting his job and hating his life. You don't do that to people. You don't even do that to animals. I have no interest in just using people, burning them out, and just say, well, I'll get another one. That is not how you treat people. Well, if we want to make it a little bit more practical, look at the next scripture. Notice he says, scripture says this, and it says this. What is the next thing? The worker deserves his wages. And you go, oh, well, that was a lot more practical. Why didn't we say that one first? Well, this actually brings up two intriguing pieces of information. First one is that it's an exact quotation in greek of luke 10 7 why is that intriguing because jesus said it you're so okay so jesus said it in luke 10 7 why is that intriguing because it's an exact quotation so it means two things number one paul and luke are working off the same document that's weird either 
And we know Paul and Luke are friends. They've traveled together. They're buddies. But when you think about it, neither one of them walked with Jesus. Remember, Luke wasn't a disciple. Jesus was, uh, Paul wasn't a disciple of Jesus. So how did they get the same exact document? Either Luke's gospel is already in circulation and Paul's looking at it because it's his friend and he has a copy and he's writing it down. Or they're both operating off an external document of the writings of Jesus, not writings, but speakings that someone wrote down that we no longer have. Either way, it's shocking that you have two different guys in the ancient world quoting each other on a very recent document. Here's the other extraordinary thing about it. They're both called scripture. Now, to us, we go, well, of course, New Testament, Old Testament, that's scripture. When it was being written, they used the phrase scripture that put the New Testament and the Old Testament on the exact same playing field. It just said that whatever Jesus says is equal to the Old Testament. Imagine growing up Jewish and hearing that. That's a big deal. You never mess with scripture if you're a Jew. It's all Old Testament. That's what God said. That is holy literature. Right here, it just equated the two. That's a powerful statement. Let's move on. It says, speaking of leadership, let's talk about a couple other issues. We can't just let these guys get taken down. Satan's obviously going to want to mess with them. Satan has always wanted to remove leaders. So let's put in a law. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. He just quoted Deuteronomy 19.15. That's an old code that said, no, we're not going to have a legal proceeding unless you have two witnesses. Why? Because anyone can say anything. They had to have some process, some judicial system by which to figure out if it's legitimate or not. Well, the rabbis took this on, put it into the Mishnah, and they carried it along. And they said, you've got to have two witnesses, and this is how it has to go. And we're not even going to open the case if there's one witness. That's not enough. Because if something really went down, somebody saw it. They didn't quite have the private lives that we do. They didn't quite have, they're all in a very small area. They were all jammed in. There was major amounts of generation upon generation upon generation. Everybody knew each other. So somebody knows about the scenario. It's a little different today. Along through church history, this was adjusted by the church. The Christian church said the witnesses have to be Christian. Why? Because at that time, persecution was so heavy on the church Outsiders would try to ruin church leadership by grabbing two or three guys that would lie together and come into the church and say something bogus just to get leadership out. They said, no, we're not going to allow that. They have to be believers. Have any of our elders ever been accused of anything? Not really. No. No. Have people said stuff that was a little weird? Have they said it about our staff? Yeah. Yeah, there's been accusation against our staff. How do we handle that? We take it extremely seriously. Um, I don't, you know, there's some parents that go, oh, my kids would never do that. You know what? I assume my kids would absolutely do that. Whatever it is. I don't even know what it is, right? They're like, well, they hijacked a plane. I'm like, hey, the six-year-old could do that. You know, you never know. It's very possible. Should probably get through the pat down anyway, so you never know. In the same way, I never assume that my staff or my elders 
are not human. I always assume if somebody walks up and they go, you know what, your staff did something, I'm immediately going to take it for face value. I'm not going to assume that they didn't do it or I'm going to suddenly run to their defense of going, oh, my precious staff, they would never. Of course they would. The question is, did they? Now, almost always, if there's a random accusation, it's not legit, but a lot of them are true and then we have to handle the situation. I just want you to know, I don't consider them out of the, out of the running. Now, I do defend my staff rather ferociously because I pour into them, I know them very well, and I'm very hard on them. So yes, I defend them to other people, but when they're in my office, a lot of them cry. Okay, it's merely because I get very serious about certain things. Have I ever been accused? Well, there's been some odd, random comments that have, I immediately take them to the elders. If anything is said about me, I bring it immediately to the elders. Why? So they can examine it. So they can know whether it's legitimate or not. Now, so far, I haven't done anything wrong that's been busted so far, right? I'm sure that I've probably done stuff. I just, yeah, I just, I never got in trouble for it. So, so far, everything seems to be pretty clear. But do you understand that you can't just allow everything to fly around and assume that it's automatically true? You got to do your due diligence. That's all. And we do that here. But notice that it says in verse 20, those who sin. Now, if you take that out of context, it could probably mean everybody. I think in context, it means elders. I'm pretty sure. I don't know that for a fact, but it sure seems like we were just talking about elders. We're going to talk about elders. I think it means elders. Those elders who sin, meaning after examination and the witnesses, and you know they are way out of line, they hurt somebody, and they did something that was completely out of line. What do you do with them after that? It says they are to be rebuked publicly. Publicly. Talk about it in front of everybody. That's very uncomfortable. Have we ever done that? We have come before you and talked about staff. Yeah. Some of you have been around long enough to know that where we had to bring up and talk about issues that were amongst us and right in front of us. We've always tried to be very upfront with you about exactly what's going on. Rebuke them publicly so that others may take warning. Basically, it's to scare the living daylights out of everybody else, right? Right? Isn't that what it is? Now, let me talk a little bit more loosely and frankly about church discipline of leaders. Some of you and many of you have come from other churches along the way. And you said, well, I've seen corruption and I've seen this and this is bad leadership. And the church hid this and the church hid that and they swept this under the rug. All right. I'm going to be honest and say sometimes there are bad leaders There are bad guys out there. More often than not, however, there are somewhat good guys that just make really horrible decisions. And then sometimes it's good guys trying to do the right thing, struggling through it and doing a somewhat good job because they don't quite know what they're doing. I think that's very common. How do I know that? Because when we went through a scenario that was very sticky and very difficult, we had to navigate our way through it. We had never done it before. There's no manual that tells you how to do it. And suddenly we're trying to figure it out. So let me run a scenario by you so you can understand. And I'm not trying to say that the particular leader that hurt you was not wrong. 
I'm not trying to tell you that. They could very well be wrong. I'm just telling you that it's hard. Imagine this. Let's say a leader does something that is improper. And they affect, let's say at a maximum, one third of the congregation. Now we have a decision to make as elders. How do we handle that? Well, we want to be very upfront. How do you pull out one third of the congregation and talk to them? You can't. You end up going in front of the whole congregation. What did you just do then? You just involve the other two thirds that have no idea what you're talking about. You just stirred up a whole concern for them. Now everybody's in on it and they didn't all need to have that concern. So half the time you're going, do we need to bring it up in front of everybody? There's a huge temptation to try to keep everybody calm. And so you want to share less rather than more. The problem with that is that there's a perception that it was covered over. The perception of covering over something will destroy you as leadership. You can't do that. So I remember when we were going through a rough time some years back, we did it almost in stages. I would come out and I would be able to explain some things. And then later on, hindsight is 2020. And I would look back and I go, wait a second, that didn't sound right. So I'd have to readdress it and be more clear because I never wanted anyone to think that in some way there was favoritism being shown, but it's really hard unless you've gone through it as leadership. You don't know how hard it is. So I understand that some of you have hurt in the past. I just want you to know, I don't know those leaders, but I know how hard it is. And maybe they were just good guys that didn't know what they're doing. It's possible. It moves on. And then he gets really strong on Timothy. There's a couple things. And because they've been buddies for 15 years and he's almost like his spiritual dad, he's pretty tough on Timothy, to be honest with you. I look at this and I'm going, man, I hope this wasn't my mentor. You know, everyone goes, oh, I'd love to be mentored by Paul. Not me. No way. Paul's hardcore. He's like the real deal. And I just constantly feel like a loser all the time. So he gets really strong on him. He says, Timothy, I charge you. That's a little extreme for buddies. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Whoa, that's even bigger. That's like a big old... Um, I'm saying it in the name of God kind of stuff. I charge you in the sight of God, Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. Well, why is he being so hard on him? Well, clearly this is an area of weakness for Timothy. Favoritism, partiality. You're going, what? Well, hold on. Let me make it a little, a little bit stronger. Why did he mention those three? God is the ultimate judge, but he mediates all his judgment through the person of who? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ carries out his judgment through who? The angels. So we just mentioned all the judges saying, Timothy, I charge you in front of God and the angels who carry out judgment. Don't you dare show partiality or favoritism. Whoa. What was Timothy struggling with? It couldn't be that he was showing partiality and favoritism in a corrupt way, because quite frankly, Paul would have pulled him off the field instantaneously. So why is he getting in his face? 
because I believe it's a personality thing. I believe that as more and more I examine 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is that Timothy's personality was more timid. He was more shy and he was not the in-your-face guy. I think he was probably nervous. I think he thought that everything was over his head. He was constantly having to tell Timothy, come on, man, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, power, love, sound mind. Don't be timid. You've got to breathe that into life. Don't neglect your gift. Let's do this. Let's be strong. Step up, man up, do what you need to do. Go in, go through the leadership, clean house. He was always telling him that because I believe that Timothy, probably by nature, wanted peace. I think that by nature, Timothy probably wanted people to appreciate him. And I think it's hard sometimes to stand alone. Some personalities have no problem standing alone. As a matter of fact, they stand alone so much that nobody even wants to be around them. (laughs) Timothy was not that guy. Maybe this is your message today, right? In your personality, you go with the flow. Maybe you're the type of personality that's more of a follower than a leader. And God says, don't you dare sway because of what everyone else is doing. You stand strong. Don't you cave. You're showing what? favoritism towards a certain issue, towards a certain person, towards a certain situation, because everybody's doing it. Everybody's pushing that way. No, you don't go along with that group. God asked you to stand and you know, the right thing to do is stand. You stand. And don't you allow the inside of you to show partiality either where you go? Well, this guy has always been nice to me, so I'm going to lean his direction. No, you cannot allow in your leadership partiality towards a child. You cannot show partiality towards a sibling. You cannot show partiality towards a friend because then everyone else that's not in that in group immediately feels harmed and they can't trust you. Is that what God's telling you today? Now it's intriguing because I don't have much of a shy bone in my body. This is not really my struggle, but my struggle falls in line the same way because I'm a people pleaser. I had to have that constantly hammered and hammered and hammered at me till I began to root some of that out because I have a desire for people to like me. This is a challenge right here where God says, you know what? Some people aren't going to like you. You know what? Sometimes you have to make a call and it's going to really tick a lot of people off and they're going to talk about you behind your back. And you know what? So what? For my personality, that's horrible. But who am I here for? Am I here for the Lord? Hmm. Let's finish it out. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. What? What does that mean? Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't grab people quickly. You're like, what? That's odd. Now, what, what... When do we lay hands on people in church? There's really kind of two key ways. What are, the, what are those ways? Well, the first one that I always think about is healing, right? Where it talks about the elders and they would anoint people with oil and they'd lay their hands on them and we pray for them, you know? Is that what it means? Because if you take it out of context, that sure sounds like it because you'd immediately go, don't pray for people quickly. But that just sounds stupid. You're like, no, that's clearly not it. So what else do we do when we lay hands on people? I did that recently with our missionaries 
Pastor Steve, I laid hands on him when I prayed for him. Ron and Kim Linegar, I laid my hands on them. Uh, every time our missions team goes out, what do the elders do? They come up and lay hands on them. Why? Because you're commissioning them for leadership. What is our context? Leadership. Read it in context. Do not be quick to commission leaders. Because if you do, look, this is still the same sentence. Do not share in the sins of others. Meaning don't lay your hands because everybody's rushing towards a bad idea. You don't just jump in and jump on board and, oh, I don't want to rock the boat, so I'm going to lay my hands on him and, yeah, let, hey, he's all good to go. No, he's not. Do not be hasty in commissioning leaders. Do not share in the sins of others, but keep yourself pure. Hold the line. Do what's right every time. And then he just blasts Timothy pretty much randomly right out of nowhere. Verse 23. Hey, by the way, buddy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because your stomach and your frequent illnesses. What? This is a passage that goes, drink more. You're like, what? All right. Very odd. I didn't think that was in the Bible, but all right. What's the, what's the cultural context? If you've been in the church any length of time, everybody's explained this to you. If you're new, let me bring you up to speed. Back in the day, I want you to think water unfiltered Mexico. Why? You don't drink that water. Because the water has little critters in it. And the little critters are going to make you run. <laughs> they will give you frequent illnesses and stomach ailments. So back in the day, you don't drink the water. There's no filtration system. They weren't boiling the water. They weren't in that same way of being able to do that. So what did they do? They would mix it with wine. Why? Because a fermentation process kills the critters. So they would take it and they would mix it together. So it was watered down to such a degree that there was really very little alcohol content at all in their general drinking. It was more as a process to clean the water. Problem is, Timothy wouldn't do that. Why? There's only two reasons why you wouldn't do that. Everybody did that. One, you wanted to be super spiritual and you were trying to do the Nazarite vow thing. Everybody remember the whole Samson Nazarite vow? John the Baptist was one. Samuel was one. Or they had this Nazarite vow that you never touch alcohol, ever. And it was a really extreme view. And maybe Timothy was trying to look good so people would respect him. Maybe that's the reason. Or maybe he was afraid that he would cause other people to think bad of him. And he would say, you know what, if I'm drinking out there, they're going to think that I'm a drunkard. And then I won't get any respect. And I can't do that. And he was caving to the pressure and he's being paranoid. And whatever reason, Paul said, knock it off. Come on, kid, really? So every time somebody has a meeting with you, they have to wait 15 minutes. <laughs> right in the middle of the meeting, you've got to take off. He's like, can we please do ministry? Stop being so paranoid. Okay, yes, people are probably going to talk, but you know why you're doing it. Stand by your conviction. You're all right. It's not a huge deal. You're killing yourself, and it's not necessary. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. And let me wrap up this leadership thing, he says. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. Sins of others, well, they trail behind them. 
In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Timothy, as you're out there selecting leaders, there are some guys that, quite frankly, their reputation of sin precedes them. Man, you don't even consider them because it's so obvious. Everybody's been talking about this guy for years, and you know there's no way you're going to bring him on leadership. But I want you to remember, kid, that not everybody's sins run out ahead of them. Some people look squeaky clean on the outside, and you don't find out till months later they're a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do your homework. You see, good deeds are obvious. Well, bad deeds will become obvious. Because someone's fruit will always demonstrate their character over time. Do not be so quick to grab somebody and put them on staff. Do not be so quick to grab somebody and allow them to lead your flock. Do your homework. Ask the questions. Now, granted, you can ask all the questions in the world and never get to the heart of it, and someone can always lie their way through an interview. Yeah? But your job is to do your best. Make sure that if someone slips by, it doesn't happen because of your laziness. That it doesn't happen because of your partiality, that you turn a blind eye to something and allow someone in because they're a buddy of a buddy. I think the heart of this whole passage is Paul's frustration because you have to remember right before this letter, Paul had gone through and had to clean out leadership on Timothy's behalf. He had to tear the whole church apart and root out big dogs. Timothy, we wouldn't have had that problem, buddy, if everybody was doing their due diligence. I had to go through and start all this carnage just to root out these guys that should have never been there in the first place. So let me remind you again, leaders need to be good people. I want you to examine them through and through. All right. Final couple thoughts. One is this. My staff is, in general, pretty balanced. But I think that there's a certain amount of paranoia that goes on in their life that we have to watch out for. Because really, if all leaders are under the microscope, and I showed you on a screen their lives and mine, the secret things that they did when no one was watching, how they handled everything in their home, how they handled people at all moments. If I began to highlight their sins on a screen, none of them would you be confident in. The problem is, is they're just like you. Me too. So we have a couple choices as far as our culture of leadership here, our culture of how we run our church. We can either have leaders that look good. Problem is, is, if you have a leader that looks perfect and polished, but they're still human, there's something you're not seeing. Most Christian leaders that I know go underground with their sin. Why? Because they'll lose their job if they don't. The ministry is set up to drive people to have double lives. The ministry is set up to shield and protect and hide in a little corner of your life that which you struggle with. 
because you're ministering to so many people, someone's going to go, well, for the sake of Christ, I'm just going to challenge you on your sin right there. I don't think that's appropriate. What if you had 4,000 opinions on you? I have chosen to create a culture and try to breed a culture that has my leaders look less than perfect. So they'll keep it up on the surface. What that does is it allows a lot of you to come back to me and go, man, that person's got a terrible attitude. Yes, they do. That's why we're working on it. But they could put on a plastic smile and not get any heat from you. But I'm not interested in that. Or you'd go, well, that person, you know what? I'm sitting there looking at them and I was watching how they're interacting with their wife. And you know what? That wasn't completely godly. No, it wasn't. You're absolutely correct. That's why we're working on it. But I would rather that happen up front and not have that happening in the home and everyone's pretending. So I want a culture, not only in our church, but in our leadership, where, yes, they don't look perfect because they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And I want to be very honest with you as much as I can. But I would much rather have that and have everybody dealing with their stuff with each other in a place where we can bring it out in the open, where it's not hidden in darkness, where Satan is going to rule it, where we can bring it out and expose it and allow at least the Holy Spirit to work on it. That's the leadership I want. So I understand you're allowed to hold them accountable. You're allowed to critique them as they are the guiders of the flock Yes, you're allowed to watch over us and call us on bad stuff. But at all times, please have in your heart that they're just regular people. And they're not perfect. And they were never expected to be. All right, last thought. We'll close the service. We're about to watch a video. Short one. That asks a key question that I've been talking about for weeks. It has to do with being thankful. We just get through this season of being thankful. And I know that our leaders may have difficulty, but they, most of them, are very thankful for their jobs. They're thankful for the blessings they had. As you went around your table and you said that you were thankful, do you know what you meant? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for giving us instruction on how to live, how to lead, and how to be. May you be praised in us and our lives a living sacrifice of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.